Tonight, we told you that we wanted to spend some time going through this and teaching verse by verse. The first lesson was on the supremacy of Christ. So tonight, we want to look at the greatness of Christ. I want to show you how the scriptures teach that Jesus is greater than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 1 beginning with verse number five. Although I'm not going to read through the end of the chapter, I plan on going that far, but I'll read the first four verses. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The greatness of Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Tonight, Lord, as we get into this Bible study, let it be one that edifies us and glorifies you. We thank you that the name of Christ, the name of Jesus is strong and powerful. You brought all of us from different directions. You brought us here safely and we thank you for that. Now let me speak clearly. Give them all ears to hear. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen. 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 We, we spoke about the origin of this epistle as far as the authorship. I told you that Despite the certain consensus among many scholars who don't believe that Paul could ever change or vary his vocabulary, that, that I don't doubt that the, uh, the many apostolic fathers and the fathers of the 4th and 5th century who believe that Paul wrote this, I just hold to that, just as well say that rather than be saying the author, the writer, and so on. But the whole point of this letter is to demonstrate that Jesus is so significant that there's nobody comparable to him. And that's why in the first few chapters, Paul is showing us that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses and Aaron. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Melchizedek. We spoke about the characteristics of Christ in verse 2 and 3. And then we concluded with verse 4 that says that by inheritance he's obtained a name that's more excellent than the angels. And so this is where we pick up tonight. Paul, Paul gives us here two questions that we have to consider. The first question is in verse 5. The second question is in verse 13. The statement he makes about Jesus being greater than the angels is important because all of the rest of the chapter is written to confirm that belief. And this is why we have so many quotations from the Psalms in chapter 1. He says in verse 5, here's the question. To which of the angels did he ever say that you're my son? The answer is simple, to none of them. Angels are created beings. They are spirits that are governed by God and they move according to his will. And there's never been an angel that the Lord ever considered to be his son. Now, we have the names of at least two angels in the Bible. 
Michael and Gabriel. And depending on how we read the book of Revelation, uh, the name Apollyon, uh, rep representing an angel that, that people have believed is, a, is the destroyer. But this quotation here in verse 5, if you've got a, a reference there in a, in a good Bible, you'll probably have a reference that says Psalm 2, <laughs> Psalm 2, verse 7. And, and the reason that is important is because Paul is demonstrating that you can prove Jesus out of the Old Testament. Now remember, whenever you read the New Testament, these people did not have the Bible as we have it right now. We open up the Bible and we turn to Romans. We turn to the book of Acts. They did not have that. They had Genesis through Malachi and then a, ho a host of other books that were not inspired of God. And so Paul takes the time to show us that even in Psalm 2, he can declare that this is spoken of the Lord. That means that a thousand years before Jesus was born, the Psalms, which is the oldest hymn book in history, in Hebrew, that this is declaring what we know about our Savior, that he certainly is the son. And then it says in verse five, I'll be a father and, a, and, and he'll be a son to me. So the relationship there, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus it has always been God and will always be God. The only way that we have, the only way we came to know that there was a relationship, the Father and the Son, is because of the incarnation. Had there not been a plan of redemption, had Jesus not been born into this world, there would have never been an idea of him being the Son, because there would have been nothing to confirm Psalm 2, verse 7. But it's always existed that way. The Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune Godhead is eternal, and it's not a fabrication of man. And even though sometimes it is difficult to try to explain it, it is one of those things you believe by faith. The same way you believe your, your sins were forgiven by the blood of Jesus. That's something you have to believe by faith. I mean, how else can you explain the blood of a deceased person who then is raised from the dead eradicating all of the wrongs you've ever done in your life. The only way you can understand that, you have to take that by faith. Verse 6, <clears throat> Jesus is spoken of as the first begotten. Now there are no less than four different things in these verses we learn about Christ. We learn of his generation, that is the fact he's born into this world. We know he's unique because of his commission. He was sent by God into this world. We know at the same time he's unique because of his resurrection. He's called the first begotten of the dead. And we know he's unique because of what he comes to possess after the resurrection because he is called the heir of the Lord. Verse 6 says he's the first begotten into the world. So let all the angels of God worship him. Angels are not worshipped, but they are worshippers. We don't worship angels. There is the testimony in the book of Revelation where John, in the midst of his vision, actually bowed down in the presence of someone. And then the, the man told him, stand up, for I am one of your brethren. Don't, 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 uh, don't worship me. Angels of God worship him. So is there an example of the angels worshiping Jesus. Well, how about his birth? Remember the angels testified and said, I've got good news for you. A savior is born to you. 
this day. And then it says the host of angels appeared in the heavens and they began to sing. And this is why to this day you have Christmas carolers and people go around and and stand outside people's houses and sing all kinds of beautiful songs about the Savior. It's because someone did that before we ever started doing that. The angels sang and praised the Lord. I remember one time I wasn't feeling well and I was sick and I was in the house and and, and hadn't been able to get out. And then all of a sudden, Tiffany and I sitting in the living room, we hear all this singing out in the yard. And like, who in the world is out here as cold as it is singing out here in front of the house? And then I go and I, I didn't dare open up the door. You didn't want people to know you're really there. You know, I just kind of lifted up the blind just to see who in the world that was. And here the Brueggemann's and another family with a bunch of kids. And they're all out there singing. And just waiting for me to get the door open so they can get out of the cold and into the heat. Well, let all the angels of God worship him. And that is something that we should learn from them because Jesus is worthy of worship. He is the only one worthy of our worship. Give your time, your energy, your resources, your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength to worshiping God. And he says in verse seven, then. That this is the God who makes his angels spirits. You can't see them. You cannot see a spirit. Nor can you see the wind. Because in Hebrew, the same word for wind is the exact equivalent for spirit. You can't see it with your natural eye. Jesus told Nicodemus that the wind blows wherever it wants, but you can't see it. You can't stop it. You can't capture it. There's nothing you can do with it at all. He also says in verse 7 that, that he, his ministers, talking about his angels, because you can see that in verse 14, he talks about his angels as ministering spirits. He says they're also a flame of fire. How does that work? When Moses met God in a burning bush, Acts chapter 7, verse 30 says, God spoke to Moses through an angel out of the flame of a bush, a flame of fire in a bush. So an angel can take on the appearance of whatever God wants that angel to take on. Later on in this book, we learn that sometimes we entertain angels unaware. So that means that you, you could run into an angel as a poor person. You could run into an angel as someone in need, someone in distress, someone who comes to aid or to help you. And you not even know what exactly is, is taking place. Remember the, the angels that came into town to visit Lot at his, at his home? And they looked so human that the men of the city wanted to fornicate with the angels, not even knowing that they were angels. They just thought they were men. So God has the ability to send his messengers forth so that those angels will look like us. Don't be surprised. Remember, Jesus came into this world in, the, in that way. He took upon himself the form of man. Look at verse 8. But it's unto the Son that God says, you have a throne. And he calls him, O God. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 45. And here is a verse that speaks explicitly about Jesus being God. So if you ever run into anybody or you hear somebody on television say, well, there's nothing in the Bible that ever says Jesus was God. Well, Hebrews 1 verse 8 has it right here. You have the text right there. 
And if the earliest disciples of the Lord believed that he was God, and Jesus certainly did say he was God, because in John chapter 5, he said that he and the Father are essentially one, and the people said, you make yourself equal with God. Jesus understood that he was God in the flesh. Now, if he is God, as the scriptures declare, then his character is important. Now, if we don't listen to anything else, listen to what I'm going to teach now, because if, if, if there's someone seated on the throne and they have power and a scepter, then they're going to rule according to the character that they exhibit. You know, that's, that's how they're going to rule. You cannot separate God's actions from who he is. Now, we try to do that. I, I saw someone one time being interviewed on Christian television, and it was an actor. And, and they, was at, they were asking this individual, how is it that you're able to make some of the movies that you make and do some of the scenes that you do, you know, some of them call for the actor or actress to kiss somebody else's spouse or, you know, that, that kind of a thing, be without clothing in some scenes. And, and I'll never forget the response that I heard from the person being interviewed. They said, you have to understand that, that, that I'm a Christian and, and that's what I do, but that's not who I am. See the separation? See, I'm, I'm doing something different here but what I am in my heart is most important. But, but remember here what I'm saying in verse 8. You cannot separate what God does from who he is because all of his actions flow out of his character. And your character is important. If you sow a thought, you'll reap an act. If you sow an act, you'll reap a habit. And what becomes your habit is going to eventually be the manifestation of your character. That's, that, that's so true. There was a great preacher named Philip, Philip Brooks that, that said one time, he said, character may be manifested in great moments, but it is made in the small ones. See? Character is something that's very important. If you're going to have power and dominion and, and rule yourself, the scripture says he that doesn't have rule over himself is like a city whose walls are broken down. If, if you're going to if you're going to have dominion and power over yourself, you have to develop a strong character. Otherwise, you'll be abusive with the power that you have. Your tongue. See, God gives us the ability to mark our speech. We don't have to curse if we don't want to. We don't have to use words that aren't nice. We have the ability to tame this tongue through the power of the of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to just give everybody a piece of your mind. I mean, you can, you can keep a little of that to yourself and for yourself. You don't have to give it all away, you know. Character is important, and, and it is the thing that makes us who we are. If you spend time with me for a few hours and I spend time with you for a few hours, eventually who we really are is going to come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it'll really come out because we'll be with each other during different, different circumstances. So if Jesus occupies the throne and he's God and he has a scepter of righteousness, then righteousness becomes not only the standard by which he lives, but righteousness is also what he wants to see overspread the kingdom or the place over which he exercises his rule in his dominion. And that scepter is righteousness. The scepter is an emblem of power. If I didn't believe the Lord was righteous, he would have no power over me because I wouldn't even believe in him. 
But I believe that God does all things well. Even the things I don't understand, I still believe he, he's righteous. I don't believe God is ever in his in his life or in all of time since man has been here. There's never been anything that he has done that I need to question. And the things that I don't understand, I still don't need to question. That's why the scripture says the mysteries belong to God, but the, the secret things belong to God. But the things I reveal belong to men. Yeah. If 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 he helps me to understand it. I say, praise the Lord, but I'm not going to go to hell over a mystery. I'm not going to get offended at God and mad because I don't understand something. He's righteous. He put the plan of salvation together long before I ever was born. And he is the one that established it. So there's no need of me getting frustrated over the fact that he says Jesus is the way. He didn't say I was the way. He didn't say there were two ways or five ways. He said his son is the way. That's part of his righteousness. That's what he wants to see uh, put out uh, throughout the, the kingdom. So if, if we're redeemed and we're heirs and we ourselves are to be kings, then we want to be exactly like our, uh, our Savior. So, so he's righteous. And notice what verse 9 says. Thou hast loved righteous and hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That means that he is righteous, and now we learn something wonderful here. He loves what is right, but he despises what is wrong. That, that, that should be our characteristic. Now, can, you, can you say you're like that? You're, that you're so in pursuit of God that you... Love what is right, but you don't like what is, uh, is wrong. And what does it mean to love righteousness? Well, first of all, you have to be able to identify what is righteous and what is unrighteous. If you can't identify it, you can't even pursue it, you can't love it, you can't hate it. The moment you have an idea of what that is, then it'll begin to make sense. And we learn what that is from the word of God. The scripture tells us what is correct and what is inaccurate. So I say, Lord, if 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 I am to exercise power over myself, then I need to be a person that can at least at least be righteous. You've heard people say love the sinner, but hate the sin. I, I was looking at a. Uh, some statements of, of C.S. Lewis, who's a very famous writer, made some, you know, some movies are based on him. And he said he was struggling with how in the world can you really do that? How, how can you separate the sin and the sinner, love the human, but despise what they do? And he said the more he thought about it, the more he realized that that was something he had to apply to his own life. Because he said, in reality, he said, I'm fairly selfish. He said, I love myself, but I hate my faults. He said, I hate my failures and my weaknesses. And he said, I have a lot of them. But he said, I still love myself. And, and all of us have uh, issues in our lives that, that God, he takes his finger and he, and he puts his finger on and he points at it. And he says, now, you, you, you deal with that, you work on that. And it's our obedience to him that demonstrates our love for righteousness. Because our, our disobedience is what shows that we don't hate iniquity. John Wesley was a great preacher over in uh, England. And 
I'm not mistaken, his mom and dad had a, a bunch of children. Oh my, they had a lot of them. And I forget where John shows up in the midst of all of that, but uh, in his journal, he talks about his mother, Susanna, trying to teach him about what is sin or what iniquity is. And this is what she said to her young son. She says, if you would judge of the lawfulness or unlawfulness of pleasure, take this simple rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, and takes off the relish or desire of spiritual things. That to you is sin. See? Anything that weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience. That, that's what is going to be sin. The, the, the culture of the world, according to John, works on that conscience to, to change it so that our conscience becomes numb. Uh, John says it this way. The only thing that's in this world are three things. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in it. Because we had lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Then he goes on. The last verse of the first epistle of John. The last verse says the whole world lies in wickedness. That means everything outside the kingdom of God is somehow opposed to the culture of God. If, in fact, it doesn't promote who God is. That's that's what what John was saying in, in that epistle there. Uh, another another quote here. Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Yeah. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. So verse nine, you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And it's because of this reason God's anointed you with oil. So who was anointed in the Old Testament? The priests. Sometimes the kings, maybe every now and then a prophet. And the anointing came upon them as a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians one verse 30, I believe, says that all of us have been anointed by God and established. So God has anointed you above the people of the world who don't believe in him. And he's anointed you with the oil of gladness. This is why Christians are the happiest people on the planet. We have a reason to be happy. Yes. Christians are supposed to be people that enjoy God, enjoy one another, and enjoy fellowshipping. If, if you ever want to measure or gauge the health of people in worship with one another, pay attention to two things. Pay attention to, number one, how they sing when they worship their God. The second thing is pay attention to how they act when the service is over and everybody's got to interact with one another. Yeah. Now, if, if, if people sing like they would rather be in the dentist chair than having to sing to God, that's not good overall for the congregation, I'm telling you. And if, and if after the service, people would rather be doing anything other than having to talk to other Christians, that's not good either. Because God gives us gladness and joy in our heart. And, and the scripture says a merry heart does good like a medicine. That means I'm medicine to you. You're medicine to me just by the fact that we make each other laugh. 
Yeah. It's a powerful thing. If you're passing through a difficult time or you're wrestling with depression, the best place to be is around people that have been anointed with the oil of gladness. The worst place to be is with them people that I said want to be in the dentist chair. Yeah, that's because you, you, it, it's possible. Well, let me put it in, in the, I'll frame it as a, as a question. Have you, have you ever, have you ever saw well, you, somebody calls you on the telephone and, you know, I, I've told you the best invention since printing has been caller ID. That's, that's the second best invention, caller ID. Have you ever been doing something and then all of a sudden the, the phone rings and then you look at the number and now you've got to determine if you really want to deal with this right now? Just, I mean, because you're feeling good. You're feeling good. But you, you've got to... You got to figure out if you want to answer. I know that's true because I know how long it takes for you to answer me when I call you. Yes. There have been times I've called Bill from his driveway and he's just standing there probably looking at the telephone. <laughs> See? So all of us, we, we understand what, what, what we're saying here. Verse 10, and you, Lord, in the beginning which again puts Jesus in the position of creation. This is a quotation from Psalm 102. You have laid the foundation of the earth. Now that's explicit. He is saying Jesus was involved with the creation of the earth. However you want to explain it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Lord, in the beginning. Well, Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 8 is very plain. Jesus is God. Verse 10 tells us that this God, this Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of his hands. Tonight, if you go out and you look up into a sky and it's clear and you see stars that are sparkling up there, remember that Christ was involved with that. He was involved with the making of that. Every one of them that glitters and shines. And if you're able to understand the arrangements of the, the stars and, and you can pick out the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and all of that. The only reason there are patterns in the skies are because of God. That's, that's the only reason in the Old Testament people can talk about these configurations like Orion and, and, and things like that. Because God put these things up there in the sky to tell a story. To tell a story. So even... The heavens declare the glory of God. Verse 11, he says, talking about these works, they shall perish, but you will remain. So God will never fade away. They'll all wax old as a garment. A garment grows old through use, and a garment can grow old by just sitting there. Not being used at all. So when the, the people announce in church and they say, uh, we're, we're doing a coat drive or we want everybody to donate some clothing because we're going to take it to such and such place and we want to be able to give to some people who don't have anything. Most people go to their closet and look for those things that have grown old and those things that the chances are not likely they're ever going to be able to get into it again. And then they ship all of that stuff off. But if there's anything in the closet that still is in plastic plastic and has a, a price tag on it, 
It usually doesn't leave the house. Mm -hmm. Scripture says all of that kind of stuff is going to wax old as a garment. But he says the Lord will remain. God doesn't change. Now, that's an important thing. At the end of Hebrews in chapter 13, I think verse 8, it says the Lord Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever, he's the same. That means that the character of God doesn't change. We may try to rearrange or reshape interpretations of God, but God doesn't change. He's the same. But what we try to do is take the perspectives of man so that man's perspective will change. But the truth is still the same. It's just going to say the same thing tomorrow morning when you open it up and you read it. It won't be any different at all. Somebody may argue very well, but it's still going to be fairly, fairly plain to you. I'm convinced that when the people wrote these books in ancient times, they were not writing them for professional academics. I mean, these books were written by shepherds, unlearned and ignorant fishermen. And they wrote these for common everyday citizens of ancient Rome and people that lived in Israel. It's only been in the last 500 years that we've had so many outstanding, wonderful scholars who have come and helped confuse us a little more. I mean, sure, they give us a lot of insight to backgrounds and sometimes about language and words and can help situate things. But all, all I'm saying is that this does not take a master's degree or any degree to understand it. God wants this written so that people can learn and grow in him. So verse 12, as a vesture, you'll fold them up and they shall be changed. That, that's certainly what happens to, to clothing. And in ancient times, you know that happened. Remember when Jesus was resurrected, one of the things the Lord did to demonstrate how neat he was, he folded up them clothes in that tomb. See, see young people, remember that. You, Fold your clothes up, keep your room nice and neat. That's, that's what our Savior did. And then it says, but thou art the same, and your years shall not fail. That is to say, your years shall not end. He's eternal. There will never be a time where God doesn't exist. I, I think for a long time, I don't know if anybody ever found it to be true, but, but for a long time they used to say that, that Voltaire, that, that French atheist, that he had made the statement <clears throat> concerning the Bible that, that one day the Bible would be an artifact in a museum. And people would one day have to go there to see it. Well, he died. And the, the story or the legend was that his home was purchased by the British Foreign Bible Society. And they started printing Bibles right out of the home where he lived with the most famous atheist of the Enlightenment said that pretty soon the Bible would be an artifact in the museum, his place start printing Bibles. Now, if, that, if that's true, I just think that's wonderful. Oh, my, isn't that just wonderful? Oh, my goodness. Okay, here's the second question then, verse 13. He's, st he's still working on these, these questions. He's got another one here. He says, but to which of the angels did I ever say sit at my right hand? The right hand was a special place. It was a place of affection, a place of power and significance. Jacob named one of his children, Benjamin, the son of my right hand, in his old age, Benjamin. So the right hand was a place of affection in the sense that the only person appointed or allotted permission to be there would have been someone that was close to him. So when Jesus was exalted, 
and ascended from earth to heaven. He went to the right hand of the father. And according to the book of Revelation, Jesus will not sit down on his throne until all enemies have been made his footstool. But at presently, he's seated in his father's throne at the right hand. That's where Jesus is right now. So when you were a child, you could go and crawl up in the chair with mom or dad or sit close to mom and dad and snuggle with them. And they put their arm around you and hold you tight and you could snuggle with them in a way that other people couldn't do it. Other kids couldn't come and do that if they, unless they had a relationship. Certainly a stranger, a child they didn't know, couldn't just come and find that place and that position. But this is what the, the Lord has done for, for his son. So verse 13 says, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit here? He never said that to any angels. Angels aren't given that, that authority or that permission. They have no right and they have no reason to be seated on the throne because they are not deity. They are not God. They do not have dominion like that. So relationship means everything. If, if you woke up in the middle of the night and, and there was somebody in your home that wasn't supposed to be there. See, that, that wouldn't wouldn't be a good thing at all. You, you would then work to uh, expel them from the house and, and an angel shouldn't try to usurp the authority of God. Now, that's what the devil has always wanted to do. He's always wanted to be God. He's always wanted to be in a position where he could be treated as God. He knows that he's the God of this world. He wants the affection and the worship and adoration of the people of this world. And so many of the people of this world give it to him and they don't even know they're doing it. So the scripture says in Ephesians, at one time before we became Christians, we were children of disobedience. Now, now think of this. Every human on this planet is either under the, the governance of God or the devil. That's what the Bible teaches. There's no neutrality in that. All of us, our lives are either animated and actuated and governed by Scripture, by the Lord, or by some other power. Now that's, that's, that's a... That's a that's something to think about, folks. When you look at this world that we're living in now with, with all the shootings and, and one, one terrorist act after another, every time something comes up, people are always on television trying to ask these questions. Why are they doing this? I don't understand it. The answer is in the book, but people have to believe the book. You ask the average person, do you believe in God? Of course I believe in God. The average person, of course I believe in God. Do you believe in the devil? Well, you believe there's a heaven? Well, naturally, I mean, all of us going to go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. Do you believe there's a hell? Well, a little bit of superstition there. See, that, that's, that's the problem we have. Scripture says in verse 13, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The last enemy to be destroyed, according to 1 Corinthians 15 and the book of Revelation, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. There'll be a point in time we won't die anymore. Wouldn't that, isn't, isn't that going to be nice that we'll, we'll spend all of eternity together? Yes. That, that will mean that there will be no place you can go in New Jerusalem to escape me. And you met all of eternity with me chasing you up and down the road. I mean, I, I, I can't wait already. Goodness. Last verse, verse 14. 
talking about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits? So the angels are servants of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible speaks of angels. There are more angels mentioned in the book of Revelation than in any other book. But angels make their appearance in the book of Genesis. Abraham wants a bride for Isaac. He tells his servant, go to Iraq, bring back a, son, a bride for my son. The servant says, what if I go and she doesn't want to come back? Well, he says, the angel of the Lord will go before you and prepare the way. So you won't have to worry about that. So that, that's an appearance of, of, of angels. And then, of course, with Jesus' birth, angels. Jesus in the uh, temptation, 40 days, angels were there strengthening him after the devil tempted him. When Jesus was preparing to go to Calvary, Luke chapter 23, he was praying in Gethsemane. Angel of the Lord appeared, strengthened him. His resurrection, angels were there sitting on the rock to let people know he was alive. Acts chapter 1, his ascension, angels were there to let people know the same one that went up is going to be the same one to come back. Angels are everywhere when it comes to this. And God has a specific ministry for them, and their ministry is us. The second sentence of verse 14, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That's us. We're heirs of salvation. God gives them a specific assignment and his assi their assignment is to look after us. Now, we know from the Gospels, the scripture says that the angels stand before the throne of God in the very presence of God before the face of God on behalf of babies. We know that from the Gospels, which is beautiful. So here then, we can take this verse and hold alongside it Psalm 91, where God's got angels that encamp about those that fear him and care about him. So when you got in the car and came out here tonight or got on your bike and drove out here or walked here, though you might have thought you came alone, you still had angelic help with you. And that, that's a very encouraging thing to know that God is so concerned and he cares enough about us that he gives us spiritual messengers to pay attention to us I mean to be honest with you there are a lot of times when in my life I make bad decisions and you kind of need the angels of the Lord to put all of this uh, together you know, to help us now let, let's let's remember now the, the angels are at the beck and call of God. You, you don't need to run around here trying to, trying to name your angels and try to figure out who yours are. And, and even, even if you did like or do like the uh, sitcom that used to come on called Touched by an Angel, okay, let's, 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 let's be biblical and let's be scriptural. You've got to hold everything uh, together there because some people, uh, though they are religious and though they are spiritual, they're not always biblically correct and, and and shows like that aren't always aren't always accurate uh, we, we want to have a hunger and a pursuit for God that that causes us to, to chase after what is what is righteous uh, the last thing I tell you was there was a man named Ernest Shackleton who over a hundred years ago he was he was trekking with some of his friends and they were trying to get to the South Pole during the winter that's, that's, a, that's a long, long way to go. So they, they set off with four ponies, and they needed the ponies to carry the load, but within about three or four weeks, 
the ponies were dead, all of their rations were gone, and they were all but exhausted, so they couldn't make it all the way to the, 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 the South Pole, so they had to turn and go back with, without their goal being accomplished. So the whole thing was 127 days. Imagine that out there in that cold. And on the return journey, Mr. Shackleton in his book called in, uh, in the Heart of the Antarctic, or the Heart of the Antarctic, he said that he and his companions spent the whole time going home just talking about food. That's, that's all they talked about. They were so hungry. He said they talked about food. They were, their thoughts were occupied with eating and feasts. So, so here's what, what Jesus says in Matthew. That the, the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. That's, the, that's one going to be filled and one's going to be happy. So our, our desires should be that way also. We're, we're, we're making our way from here to New Jerusalem. And as long as we're here in this physical body, trying to make our way towards heaven, our thoughts too should be occupied with how can we feed on the righteousness of the Lord. We've got a Savior that's so great. Yeah, Put him first. Don't, don't put him second. Put him first and you'll find that he'll bless you in every endeavor in Jesus' name. Come on, let's have a word of prayer. Father, what a great evening it is to look into the word of God and to see that we're anointed with the oil of gladness. We are happy that we're redeemed. And we're happy that redemption has come to us. Lord, the knowledge of redemption has come to us. We want to pray, God, that you continue to keep a hedge of protection around each one of us. We want to pray for our nation, pray for our president, Congress, Pray for our Supreme Court, various judges and governors and mayors in every large and small town or city. Father, you said to pray for those that are in charge of us that it might be well with us. And Lord, with so many changes constantly taking place, Lord, preserve your church in the earth. and Keep them and guide them in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.